In her book, The Patron Saint of Liars, Anne Pratchett tells the story of Rose Clinton and her daughter Cecilia, who live at St. Elizabeth's Home for Unwed Mothers. Uh, the story is set a, a very long time ago when being pregnant out of wedlock was a really disgraceful thing and where families would send their daughters away until the event was over and then bring them back again. R Rose is the cook uh, and her daughter Cecilia is the darling of the place. She's loved by everyone, especially all these young women who are about to give up their babies for adoption. One day when she is 15 years old, Cecilia meets one of the new girls who's come to St. Elizabeth's. Uh, her name is Lorraine. She's skinny with red hair. She sat in the corridor, absolutely terrified, waiting to be interviewed by Mother Corrine, the nun in charge. And Cecilia decides to help her out by giving her some advice. The guy who got you pregnant, she tells Lorraine, don't say he's dead. Everybody does that. It makes Mother Corrine crazy. Lorraine sits on her hands and is quiet for a minute. I was going to say that, she said. See? So what do you tell her? I don't know, Cecilia says. Tell her the truth. Or tell her you don't remember. What did you tell her? Lorraine asks. And Cecilia is speechless. I sat there, absolutely frozen. I felt like I'd just been mistaken for some escaped mass murderer. I felt like I was going to be sick, but that would only have proved her assumption. No one had ever, ever mistaken me for one of them, not even as a joke. The lobby felt small and airless. I thought I was going to pass out. The reason Cecilia felt so sick was because she'd been mistaken for one of what she thought of as them, one of the weak people who'd made a bad decision, who'd done something so shameful that their own families had sent them off to live with strangers until the evidence of their actions could be put up for adoption. In theological terms, Cecilia thought she was going to pass out because she'd been mistaken for what she would have called a sinner when she felt that she was pure. It wasn't that she disliked sinners. She'd grown up with them. She was friendly and helpful and gave them good advice. She just never expected to be mistaken for one of them, because in her own mind, she was another class of person, which of course is untrue. A very similar thing happens in the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning with our Lord Jesus. Not simply that Jesus may have been mistaken accidentally for a sinner, but something far more significant, that Jesus actively goes out to be identified with sinners. If you've got your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 13 to 17. Matthew writes that then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Matthew tells us that Jesus traveled uh, to the Jordan River from Galilee. It's about a two-day journey of about 60 kilometers on foot to go and be baptized by John, to stand in this queue of sinners who are awaiting baptism. John, as you'll remember, was a very unusual character who'd who'd suddenly just appeared in the Judean desert. I'm sure uh, you've come across uh, street evangelists at some point, Um, someone who stands on the street corners and shouts at the top of their voice the need for people to turn away from sin and turn to God or face the consequences. Well, John the Baptist was a character very similar to one of those street evangelists. Uh, The only difference being that John didn't stand on a street corner. In fact, he seems to have gone out of his way to get as far away from people as possible. He's out in the desert preaching. Uh, generally, people tend to avoid evangelists or street, on street corners. But in this passage, we read that crowds of people flock to hear John. They pack their lunches, they walk the 10 or 20 kilometers it would have taken them to go and hear this strange man. Why? Well, because for the past 300 years, God had not spoken to the nation of Israel. There'd been no prophets or priests or kings who'd spoken for God. And now suddenly, after 300 years, here is a man who claims to have a message from heaven. People also took note that John's strange clothing was exactly the same kind of clothing that the prophet Elijah had worn centuries earlier. And some of the more insightful people may have remembered that the Old Testament ends in the book of Malachi with a promise. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And so they would have wondered, could this be Elijah? Could he be heralding the coming of the Messiah? Or is this even the Messiah himself? You see, the people of that time had had a deep spiritual hunger. The people of John's time were searching, just as we are. See, all of us have this God-shaped vacuum inside of us. We have a yearning within us for something, although we don't even recognize what that yearning is. And we try and fill that vacuum with all sorts of things, Some people try to fill that God-shaped hole with money. They try to work harder and harder to earn more and more. Some people try to fill that hole with power. And so they work as hard as possible to climb the corporate ladder. And they network and they try and make the most powerful friends. But when they get to the end of their lives, having climbed partway up the ladder, they discover that they've been leaning the ladder against the wrong wall. None of those things can fill this gap. Not entertainment or alcohol or sex or pleasure. Only God can fill our deepest yearnings. 
St. Augustine was a bishop who lived in North Africa in about 350 AD. And he put it best when he prayed these words. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. People of John's time were restless, desperately looking for something, even though they didn't necessarily know what it was. And I wonder this morning if perhaps you're restless as well. Keep on trying to fill life with stuff, hoping that the next experience, the next holiday, the next promotion will give you what you're looking for. My friend, you'll never experience fullness in this life until you've met the Lord Jesus. John had, had a very simple but powerful message for his fellow Jewish men and women. He, he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That little word repent is a theological word that sometimes we don't use often enough. Um, and probably the best way to explain what, what repent means would, would be to use an illustration. Uh, when I came out of high school, uh, I wasn't quite sure exactly what I wanted to do. And the South African government had a wonderful program for those who didn't know what to do. It was called the Defense Force. Uh, I... I went, I went in as a religious objector, I, I wouldn't carry a rifle, and so I was placed in the medics for a year. As you know, I'm English-speaking, but I learned quite a lot of Afrikaans in the army, most of which is unrepeatable. <laughs> I, I didn't even necessarily know what it meant, but I knew what to do when they said those words. But one Afrikaans command I do remember was a command called Umkir, about turn. And that's what this word repentance simply means, umkir. Instead of going in this direction and doing these things, I turn around and I go in the opposite direction and do the opposite things. That's what John was calling people to do. Not only did John preach, but he also baptized people. They would go down into the Jordan River. John would ask them to confess their sins, and then he would push them down under the water and bring them back up again. And although this might seem like a strange practice to us, it would have actually been very familiar to the Jews of John's day. This was something that happened to Gentiles if they wanted to convert to Judaism. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, uh, the Jewish leaders would take him, and for a number of months they would teach him all there was to know about Judaism. Then he would be circumcised, he would offer a sacrifice to God, and he would be baptized. And after he'd been baptized, the Jewish rabbis spoke about him as being like a newborn child or like being a new creation. It was a symbol of a new life. But the strange thing about John's baptism was that he wasn't calling on Gentiles to become baptized and become Jews. Rather, he was calling on his own nation, the people of God, to be baptized. He was calling on them to turn from their sins and to begin a new life. John was also a very discerning man, though, as well. He knew if someone was genuinely sorry about their sin or not. Uh, Matthew tells us that when some of the Pharisees came to be baptized, because this was now the popular thing to do, John told them plainly, you snakes, who told you about God's coming anger? Before being baptized, go and do something to show that your hearts are really changed. 
John recognized that it's not outward action that's important, it's a decision of the heart, but that decision of the heart then leads to outward action. You see, baptism alone wasn't the most important thing. It really was what was going on inside a person that counted. Well, as I said, people came from all over to hear John and to be baptized by him, and I'm sure there must have been a great deal of crying as well as a great deal of laughing as people experienced God's forgiveness. And into all of this activity steps Jesus. He gets in line behind the old man who has tears streaming down his face, and he waits patiently to be baptized by John. There's something strange about Jesus being in this queue of people, isn't there? In fact, if you have a look at the various gospel accounts of this event, it looks like the gospel writers themselves are a bit embarrassed about it or struggle to articulate it. All four gospel writers mention the baptism of Jesus, but they're, cons they're really concerned that their readers don't get the wrong impression. Here Matthew tells us about the conversation that Jesus and John have about who should baptize whom. In Luke's gospel, Luke doesn't even mention that it's a wild figure like John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus. He just says that Jesus was baptized. And when the apostle John writes about this incident, he leaves out the baptism altogether. He just mentions the Holy Spirit alighting on Jesus like a dove and the voice from heaven. So as one writer points out, this is probably the surest sign that these things really did happen. Uh, you wouldn't make this up, or you wouldn't write this if you were making this stuff up, because it just wouldn't be in your best interests to repeat that Jesus stood in a queue of sinners. It could so easily be misinterpreted. In her sermon on this passage, Pastor Barbara Brown Taylor says this, if Jesus had listened to his public relations people, his handlers would never, ever have allowed him to be baptized. He could have stood on shore and offered words of encouragement to those going into the water, yes. He could have held out his hand to those who struggled out of the river in their heavy, wet clothes, yes. But he could not, under any circumstances, have gone into the water unless it was to tap John on the shoulder and say, hey, you go rest, I'll take over for a while. Even if he were innocent, even if his intentions were nothing but good, it was ruinous to his reputation. Who was going to believe that he was there just because he cared about those people and refused to separate himself from them? Gossip being what it was, who was not going to think that he had just a few teeny-weeny things to get off his conscience before he went into his public ministry? Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, took a great risk by standing in that queue. But stand there he does. When it comes to his turn, we read that John himself is shocked. He says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus replies, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. What, what did Jesus mean? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons that Jesus was baptized. Firstly, I believe that Jesus wanted to demonstrate to everyone around him that what John was doing and saying was right. People did need to repent of their sin. Secondly, as I've mentioned, Jesus identified with sinners. 
He didn't have any sin of his own, but he wanted to identify with the sinners for whom he'd come or whom he'd come to save. And then thirdly, by being baptized, Jesus was acting out another baptism that he would undergo later on in his ministry. In at least two places in the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples about another baptism that he must undergo. Do you remember in Mark chapter 10, when James and John ask if they can be seated at Jesus' right hand and left hand when he comes in his kingdom, Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He was speaking about the baptism of his death on the cross, where he would ultimately identify with sinners. As the Apostle Paul would later put it, on the cross, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His going under the water in the Jordan River symbolized his death, and his coming back up out of the water symbolized his resurrection. In fact, when God the Father speaks from heaven, he refers to Jesus' mission and some of what it would involve. Remember, the voice says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And if you know your Bibles well, you'll know that God is quoting himself at this point. Uh, that first part, This is my Son, whom I love, comes from Psalm 2, that speaks about the Messiah as God's anointed, God's King. But the second part, with him I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah 42, where God talks about his suffering servant who will redeem the world by sacrificing, sacrificing himself. And so, in fact, if you put those two passages of Scripture together, you get a God-given picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's the king, he's God himself, but he's also God's servant who dies for the sin of the world. I think the thing that strikes me most from this passage, though, is Jesus' identification with us as sinners. Uh, John White is a Christian doctor and, and writer. Uh, he, he describes an incident that took place in his life when he was a medical student. And he, he writes this. As a medical student, I once missed a practical class on venereal disease and because of this, I had to go to the venereal diseases clinic alone one night at a time when students didn't usually attend to meet with one of the professors. As I entered the building, a male nurse I did not know met me. A line of men were waiting for treatment. I want to see the doctor, I said. That's what everybody wants. Stand in the line, he replied. But you don't understand. I'm a medical student, I protested. Makes no difference. You got it the same way everyone else did. Stand in the line, the male nurse repeated. In the end, I managed to explain to him why I was there, but I can still feel the sense of shame that made me balk at standing in line with men who had VD. And John White goes on to say, Yet Jesus shunned shame as he waited to be baptized, and the moral gulf that separated him from us was far greater than that separating me from the men at the clinic. Moreover, my dislike of venereal disease was as nothing compared with Jesus' utter abhorrence of sin. But he crossed the gulf, joined our ranks, 
embraced us and still remained pure. He identified with those he came to save. He became like us. Jesus identifies with us. He demonstrates that he truly is Emmanuel, God with us. He doesn't stay up in heaven and shout down commands to us. He doesn't call us to come up to him. Instead, he leaves the glory of heaven and comes down, down, way down. He becomes a man. He becomes like us to be where we are. As another writer puts it, why did he become human? While being God, why was he baptized with us when he could have stayed on the banks of the Jordan and supervised? Why does he come to us where we are over and over again when he could save himself the grief, the pain, the death by insisting that we come to him where he is? Because he loves us, that's why. And because he is unbelievably pleased with us, and because he has come to lead us through the waters of life and death into life eternal. But not only is there encouragement for us in these verses, as we see how Jesus identifies with us, there's also challenge too. What about our identification with Jesus? Jesus identifies with us. Will we identify ourselves with him? Later on in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge that person before my Father in heaven. So Christian conversion means acknowledging Jesus' death for us as God on the cross for our sin. Becoming a Christian means that we come before God and we say to him, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. I acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sin. And I want to ask him to come and take my sin and to come and take first place in my life to fill that God-shaped vacuum. And the Bible tells us that when a man or a woman invites Jesus into their lives, at that moment, they are so closely linked to Christ that they share in Christ's death and resurrection. They share in Christ's death. Their old life dies with Christ on the cross as Christ takes their sin. The Apostle Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christians die to an old way of life. They die to sin. Their sin is removed. And then they share in Christ's resurrection. They are raised with Christ to a new life. Christ's perfect life is attributed now to them. It's as if they've been born again. That doesn't mean that believers never sin again. They would be the first to admit that they do. But because they've identified with Christ, when God looks at them, he doesn't see their sin. Rather, he sees the righteousness of Christ. As we read a few moments ago, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of that and so much more takes place when we simply say to Jesus, yes. And baptism is an outward expression of that inward reality. Baptism doesn't save you. The Bible's very clear on that. 
Paul writes to the Ephesians, as we heard earlier, and he says, For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Baptism isn't the thing that saves us. God saves us. All we do is reach out our hand and receive his free gift by faith. Equally, baptism isn't anything magical. There's nothing special about the water in our baptistry. It's ordinary Cape Town municipal water. It's not going to wash your sins away. In fact, it might add dirt to your life rather than take it away. No, no, again, baptism is just that outward expression of something that's taken place on the inside. Paul writes in the book of Romans, and he says that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And when we're lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. And when we're raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. So just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaks about Christians having been buried with Jesus in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is also an act of obedience to Jesus who was himself baptized and commands us to go into all the world, make disciples of all people, teach them to obey everything I have taught you, and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so while we've seen a number of interesting things about the baptism of Jesus this morning, the most important question for each of us today is this. Have you experienced this for yourself personally? Do you know Jesus as the Son of God who came from heaven to look for you? Have you experienced his free forgiveness? Have you invited him into your life, given him control of your life as your creator, as your savior and king? Have you died to an old way of life and been born again to a new life with Jesus, in Jesus, so that when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin, but sees rather the righteousness of his son? And if not, what's preventing you from doing that even today? We'd love to chat to you after the service if you'd like to do that. And if you have experienced that for yourself, have you been baptized? Have you publicly witnessed before others, I've decided to follow Jesus? And then are we continuing to witness to others, as Jörg did this morning, telling others, not just with your words, but by your actions, the difference that Jesus has made in your life. He's identified himself with us. Are we prepared in this week that lies ahead to identify ourselves with him? Let's pray together.